This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Courageous Legacy, the new movie from Sherwood Pictures, Affirm Films, Provident Films, and the Kendrick Brothers. Remastered in 4K and including a new ending, Courageous Legacy, rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. In theaters now. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. We hear a lot of criticism these days from leftist activists who sweepingly and forcefully decry colonialism. Black Lives Matter, for instance, once condemned the murder of a civilian in Nigeria by saying, quote, colonialism, imperialism, capitalism, anti-blackness and other forms of white supremacy kill black people across the globe. Yet this is interesting. Even a recent MSN piece admitted British colonial rule in Nigeria actually had some positive impacts. This article argues that colonization introduced a structured idea of government to Nigeria. It improved health care, it improved literacy, and it created numerous infrastructural developments. So what is the truth about colonization that critical race theory won't tell us? Well, joining us to talk about it, Dr. Bruce Gilley, author and professor of political science at Portland State University. He is a member of the board of the National Association of Scholars. You might remember his 2017 article, The Case for Colonialism, which drew international attention. His latest book is the last imperialist, Sir Alan Burns' epic defense of the British Empire. Dr. Gilly, great to have you with us. How are you? Great. It's very nice to be here. Thank you. This subject of colonialism is obviously a hot one right now due to the hard push on critical race theory, the 1619 Project, etc. What should we know about Sir Alan Burns, the governor of the Gold Coast during World War II? Why is he a significant figure to focus on? Well, I think he's significant because he's one of the first people who actually responded to this idea that we now see in critical race theory that uh, colonialism was sort of inherently racist, that it showed the, the dark racism at the heart of the Western and European project, that, it, you know, that, that, that colonialism was kind of exhibit A for why all white people are racist. And, and he took this on very early, got way back in the 50s and 60s, when he was noticing something strange coming out of these third world independence movements, which was rather than just seeking independence and self-government, which, of course, you know, the colonialists had planned all along, they were starting to become racist themselves. They were starting to become anti-white. They were starting to become ethnically chauvinistic within their own countries. They were starting to gang up on ethnic minorities and people who were different within those plural societies that the colonial states had created. And Burns saw that what was going to happen with anti-colonialism was it was essentially going to build up into a kind of uh, what he called a color prejudice in reverse, what we would call today reverse racism. I mean, essentially uh, scorning Europe and Western civilization and the Enlightenment even as racist projects. And he, he saw first and foremost the dangers of this, uh, you know, not so much for the West. The West can deal with digs and criticisms it always has, but mainly for the lives of the people who are going to be suddenly thrown into these post-colonial states where suddenly everything from the West must be rejected and what's in its place is not good for human lives. It's not good for welfare. It's not good for women and minorities in particular, and it's particularly bad for a free society. That's so interesting. So what was the upshot of that stance that he took? How did it bear itself out as time went along, his defense of what the British Empire was up to? Did it make a significant difference at the time? 
Well, I, I think that, um, you know, he's a person who lived colonialism. He was born in the colonies. He was born in, in St. Kitts in the British Caribbean. Uh, he, he rose up through the colonial civil service, never went to college. He was kind of born and bred in the colonial civil service. And as a colonial official, he uh, strongly touched the lives of everywhere he worked. I, I, mean, I would say that, that one reason that contemporary Ghana is uh, a sort of functioning, probably the only sort of functioning democracy in Africa and basically the wealthiest country in Africa um, is because Burns was the governor there in the late 40s and he made a decisive step to keep the Ghanaians, it was then called the Gold Coast, uh, to keep the Ghanaians kind of on side with the British imperial project and the rule of law and the protection of property rights and the uh, kind of adherence to constitutional government. And, you know, that country itself is pretty much his creation, as is contemporary Belize, where he was governor before that, where he also made a kind of dramatic contribution to getting that country onto the right path. I mean, you notice that nobody coming in our southern borders from Belize, right? right. I mean, and, and <laughs> because because Belize actually is a successful country because it actually was part of the British Empire and people are happy to stay there. So. He made those contributions. He then fought kind of the last stand at the United Nations, where he was in the 1950s, basically the point man on colonial affairs for Great Britain. And um, I, I would say he would feel that although he made a valiant argument, ultimately the forces were too strong against colonialism. Uh, the UN was basically a, uh, you know, someone call it a, a, a slum clearance project for the colonial project. You know, it was basically mm. just just eliminating colonialism left, right, and center, whether or not there were countries ready to govern, whether or not there was a civil service, whether or not there was a judiciary, uh, you know, um, some black nationalist who'd spent most of their youth in London or Paris suddenly came back and declared that they were the George Washington of that nation. And, and the UN just crumbled to those kind of forces. There were, of course, Cold War pressures, uh, the United States and Soviet Union both angling to be uh, the friends of whatever emerged from this mess. And uh, I think he made a valiant stand in the 50s and the early 60s, but ultimately that failed. And we've seen the results of that for the last half century. Yeah, we sure have. Well, one of the arguments I want to get into more on the critical race theory argument about colonialism and against colonialism. But some people have said over the years, it's just not right for one country to come in and exert control or extend control over other countries. And on that reason, that when we look at that reason alone, we should conclude the British Empire never should have done what it did in the first place. How do you look at that, knowing what you know about the entire movement and the British Empire in particular? Well, I think the statement is correct. So if country A uh, does not want to be colonized by country B, then country B should not colonize it. I mean, consent and legitimacy are absolutely central. Um, And so there's two answers. One is, most colonialism, in particular the British colonialism, enjoyed very strong support and consent of the colonized. And in order, it couldn't have happened without it. I mean, there were very few British officials on the ground in these colonies. Most colonial rule was done by the colonized. So that's a bit of a wrench in the, in the idea that colonialism was some external imposition, some kind of you know forcing brown people around at bayonet point. I mean, it's a ridiculous cartoon. It's not an accurate historical account of how colonialism spread. The pull factors, in other words, the factors pulling these colonial powers into these countries were much stronger than the push factors. Most people in Britain and France were ambivalent about colonialism. They thought it was a waste of money. Um, but the pull factors were very strong. So so one answer to that is, you know, that uh, the consent and legitimacy of colonialism was was generally quite strong. That's how it survived as long as it did. The second answer is, you know, 
It's only true if there's a country there. And in most of these places, there was no country there. I mean, you mentioned Nigeria. Nigeria is a creation of the British. Ghana is a creation of the British. Uganda is the creation of the British. So what you had in most places, in particular in Africa, was a uh, unsettled area of constantly rivalous and warring tribes and groups who with shifting alliances and allegiances that were regularly displacing, enslaving, and oppressing one another. And that was the status quo. There was no country. There was no state structure. So to say that, that, that country A you know, imposed its rule on country B is to assume there's a country B there. And in most places, there wasn't. What there was was a shifting alliances of groups and whatnot. And for the most part, those who faced imminent threat and subjugation by larger historical rivals were the ones who allied with the Europeans and said, hey, that's why the European colonies were actually often called protectorates, right? Because they, they were there to protect these other groups. I mean, uh, in contemporary Nigeria, you basically had a slave state in the entire north called the Fulani, uh, the Fulanis, uh, the Sokoto Caliphate. Uh, it was in the process of turning all of that area into an Islamic slave state. The British stepped in and prevented that with the support of the southern groups. That's how colonialism was established there. And then later on, the Fulani became more or less reconciled to British rule, too, because the British were so careful to try and protect their cultural institutions in the north. Uh, the same would be true in other countries in, in Uganda, the, the Buganda, after which the country's name were basically on the warpath when the British arrived. They were they had already basically decimated and eliminated about a dozen tribes. They were in the process of conquering the others, and the British stepped in and created a protectorate. It was essentially, as the word suggests, a way to protect groups from enslavement and subjugation by their historic rivals, create something of a civic government in which all were equal and one skin color didn't matter or one's language or religion didn't matter. Um, and that's what the colonial project was. It was it was replacing essentially feudal rule. Yep. We're going to come back. Dr. Bruce Skelly, the last imperialist, his book. Stay with us on Janet Meffer today. Ask yourself, what do you pay for health care? Are you single? Do you pay more than $199 a month? Are you a couple? Do you pay more than $299 a month? Do you have a family? Do you pay more than $399 a month? Yes, you can serve the entire family with health care for only $399 a month with Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals. Sign up at any time of the year. Pick your own doctor and hospital. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mafford for Bible League International. Jaime is an itinerant pastor in Ecuador. In Latin America, there, there are violence. Pastors and Christian workers uh, face with attackers, thieves, gangs. So that's the, that's the problem. 
Jaime will travel days by foot, boat, and mule. He's been beaten by warlocks, robbed, and suffered broken bones after falling in the Andes Mountains. What awaits him at the end of each trip? A thriving congregation of hundreds of believers in an area where Christianity is fiercely opposed. When I share Jaime's story, I recall Isaiah 6, 8. Whom shall I send? Who will go? I believe this man is enduring more than some pastors ever will. And like others in the world where Bibles are desperately needed, Jaime is humbly asking us to send God's word. For only $5, you can send a Bible to Latin America and around the world, and a special match will double your gift. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, or there's a Bible League banner at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today, and now here's Janet. Welcome back. We do hear an awful lot about the evils of colonialism, but we don't often hear the other side of the story, particularly a historical analysis. There's a great new book out, The Last Imperialist, Sir Alan Burns' Epic Defense of the British Empire by Dr. Bruce Gilley, who is author and also professor of political science at Portland State University. Sorry about that, Dr. Gilley. We had to run to a quick break. The clock gets in the way sometimes, but you were making... I'm a professor. I go on and on. Okay. No, no, it's no problem at all. But, But what you were saying was so fascinating because all we get is this rhetoric about how evil colonialism was. And I think this was a quote that you had cited before from Sir Alan Burns when he was talking about the people of the Gold Coast coming forward by the thousands with men to serve in the army and with liberal gifts to war funds and war charities, which he said was curious conduct for people tired of British rule. I don't hear Black Lives Matter talking about that kind of issue very much, if at all. No, well, they don't want you to hear about that because uh, it would undermine one of the key tenets of the Black Lives Matter movement, which is that, uh, you know, European civilization, Western civilization has been fundamentally not just kind of evil and oppressive, but also illegitimate in the minds of the colonized. And that's just false, right? I mean, people are not falling off airplanes to get to Ethiopia these days. People are falling off airplanes to get to the United States. Uh, You know, ever since some of these countries have decolonized. The people have had to, f- to flee to better governed countries or, or to try and get into the West itself. And during the colonial era, um, as I said, most colonial governance, most colonial soldiering, most colonial policing uh, was done by natives. That, that's the only way it could have worked. That was uh, indicative of the fact that natives understood this was better than the alternatives. Was this kind of high liberal democratic governance? No, but for its time, it was very enlightened and progressive. It brought economic and social benefits, and it was legitimate. And the problem with Black Lives Theory, Black Lives Matter movement is, it's trying to essentially uh, return black people to a kind of tribal mentality uh, that, that in which they see their interests as separate from other human beings, others in a Western liberal democratic state. I mean, you know, this is basically the the feudal and parochial worldviews that colonialism disrupted, and uh, they're trying to reconstruct it with a kind of postmodern spin. That's so interesting because, you know, when you get into this kind of tribal mentality, it divides people. Obviously, we've seen great evidence of this over the last several years. But this idea that colonialism was racist doesn't seem to hold water when the whole idea was that anybody should be able to be free. Anybody should be able to develop in ways that are, you know, in line with a better country for everybody, have peace. I mean, the, the ideals that were largely spread through the British Empire were not racial goals. So how in the world can they maintain that narrative? 
Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, it is, you know, colonialism, of course, often followed one of two things. Either it followed trade or it followed missionaries. Um, And both trade and missionary activity had at their root a fundamental thing, which is, you know, if you're a trader, uh, you're equal to me because we engage in, in trade as equals. We strike a bargain and we exchange as equals. I don't get a higher price from you because I'm this color or that color. That's one of the essences of trade. That's why market economies are good for free societies because they are, they are premised on that fundamental equality of buyer and seller. Missionaries, of course, came and brought with them a fundamentally Christian insight about the deep imprint of God that makes us equal in the face of the Lord. Uh, that was a fundamental drive of colonialism, whether it said that explicitly or not, but these were Christian nations. They were bringing uh, what they saw, saw correctly as uh, better government and more opportunities to these people. And right, if they, if they were racists, why would they have that presumption? They, they could not have had that presumption. Now, they did see their own countries as being more developed and more advanced. They used language like civilized that causes us to, you know, need smelling smelling salts these days. But I mean, it's basically (laughs) the language meant, uh, you know, we figured out that using a wheel is better than carrying a load on your head. (laughs) And we think that you also will find the wheel more useful. So that is just a universalist approach. You know, my line is always colonialism was the biggest anti-racist program in world history. Mm. And the CRT people don't want you to know that. Now, you know, one of the missionaries I was thinking about when you were saying that was William Carey, because William Carey was a big proponent of ending this practice in India where this widow would sacrifice herself on top of her dead husband's funeral pyre. And so you could say on the one hand, oh, this is this colonialist coming in and trying to change, you know, the ways of a country. But isn't that an improvement when you say, listen, you don't have to die just because your husband has died. Let's let's get out of this. Let's stop doing this. Yeah, well, there was always two. That was what's called the sati practice, which um, was actually welcomed. Its abolition was welcomed by the people subject to it. But, you know, one answer was, well, if, if you're going to assert the sort of equal moral standing of all cultures, then, you know, the sort of quip that the British official gave in response to the, uh, the Brahmin saying, well, you know, in our culture, when a husband dies, the woman... Uh, throws herself on the funeral pyre, and the British official responded, well, in our culture, when you throw someone on a funeral pyre, we march you up the scaffold and hang you. So that's our culture. Yeah. Um, and that was kind <laughs> of like, okay, this is just different cultures. And, you know, uh, but, but of course, the, the, the bigger point is um, it, it wasn't, uh, it, you know, it wasn't welcomed, that practice. It was a bit like dueling. You know, dueling is a kind of practice that was what we call a a, a malign norm. Nobody really likes it, but nobody can get rid of it. And hmm. so when the British came in, they had the ability to get rid of a malign norm like that. And nobody's ever looked back. Nobody's ever seriously said, boy, we really wish we could go back to Sati again and some hmm. of those practices. Yeah, that's right. So critical race theory also says the whole practice of colonialism was unjust. I had mentioned at the outset some of the improvements that even a liberal site like MSN is admitting were, were good things that came out of colonialism. What do you say though to the downsides of colonialism do do the people criticizing the british empire have a point on anything significant where would you actually get in line with what they're saying on if there is a point yeah actually i'm kind of out there in the sense of i don't think any there there was a assist at a system level right that level of like the system as a whole i don't think there was anything rotten about it now there were some things like sir alan burns for instance was very critical about the lack of attention to public education in the colonial systems. And that was, of course, because the missionaries typically ran the education systems. And Sir Alan thought that it was a big mistake to not invest more in publication. Okay, fair, fair enough. 
He also thought that, you know, the British government was too stingy. It had a kind of Victorian view that colonies should balance their own books. And, you know, he thought there should have been a little bit more fiscal leniency. Okay, fair enough. These are these are small things. But I think that the point is, you know, the system as a whole of colonialism, certainly with the British Empire, and I would argue with with others as well, um, was a fundamentally good one. It's an unambiguously good one in a sense of it unambiguously made lives better. Now, does that mean that if you troll through the archives and the news stories, you're not going to find a lot of bad stuff that happened. Of course, you're going to find a lot of bad stuff. Every government system fails. There's no yeah. perfect governance system. So, yes, you're going to find corruption. You're going to find abuses of authority. You're going to find police misconduct. You're going to find um, counterinsurgency campaigns that went awry. Of course, you're going to find that. But this is you know, the difference between uh, errors in the in the conduct or errors in the implementation of a project and the project itself. The right. project itself was a good one. Its results were positive. Uh, I'd say there's no country, no European colonial country at all, whose misgovernance problems, uh, where they arose, were so serious as to invalidate the whole the whole project. I don't think that's true of any of these countries. Yeah, very interesting. And you've written before about ways to reclaim colonialism. Why should it be reclaimed? In fact, probably a lot of Americans say, look what just happened in Afghanistan. That was not a colonialism sort of situation. But the, the idea, do we really have to support this idea of going into other countries? Is that a fundamentally bad idea? What would you say about a 21st century idea of colonialism? and whether or not that should be pursued in certain contexts? Well, well, it has been pursued a lot. There's there's lots of cases where, you know, for instance, the British were asked by the uh, government of Sierra Leone to go back in and rebuild their police police, uh, agencies because they were corrupt and uh, dysfunctional. And this wasn't just a kind of, you know, consultants and aid project, but the British were actually given control of the entire national police system, right? <laughs> Sovereign control. So this was, that's colonialism. Colonialism is where you actually hold power, right? You don't, right. You're not just an aid consultant or something. So we've seen that. We've seen instances where, for instance, uh, in Liberia, where the World Bank uh, had co-signatory arrangements on all fiscal spending. So the Liberian government could not spend a dime unless it had a signature from a World Bank official. Now, that's colonialism. And it worked fantastically, actually, when it was in place, as did the British rebuilding of the police force in Sierra Leone. Um, you know, the Lebanese, since their uh, great warehouse fire, have a petition going around asking the French to come back really? and, and rule <laughs> Lebanon because, I mean, can it get much better in Lebanon? I mean, it's kind of like, uh, you know, what, what have you got to lose? You know, the kind of famous uh, argument. And right. interestingly enough, my views of Nigeria began because I read a book by the great Nigerian novelist, Chinua Akebi, where he said, look, we uh, we were better governed by the British than we were as an independent country, uh, mm-hmm. which was a shocking comment coming from him. So I think what's important is if a country wants to bring back uh, a colonial form of governance, either as a whole or in part of its government, then that seems to me a totally legitimate and acceptable thing to do. Of course, the difference between you know, Iraq and Afghanistan is those didn't begin as colonial governance projects. Those no. began as military projects to overthrow bad guys who threatened the United States from a security standpoint. They then morphed into colonial situations, but the problem was that the the, the premise of being in there was had been military to start. So it you know you're never gonna you, you have to kind of go out and start again if you wanted to to, to have a, a a proper kind of governance arrangement with the people of Iraq or the people of Afghanistan. We never had that. That was of course part of the problem. Yeah. Um, 
And then I talk about, you know, the idea of just setting up little kind of island colonies around the coast of Africa and Asia. I mean, uh, that's what Hong Kong is. That's what Singapore is. Uh, they work fantastically. Well, and that that's such an important thing for people to be able to understand is the other side of this equation of colonialism, where we only ever hear from the CRT proponents yelling and screaming, but there's not a lot of history. And there is in this book, again, it's called The Last Imperialist, Sir Alan Burns' epic defense of the British Empire. You can read it. Dr. Bruce Gilley has been kind enough to join us, and it was a delight to have you. Thank you so much, Dr. Gilley. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I did, too. Thank you for being here. God bless. You are listening to Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by The Jesus Music, the new documentary from Lionsgate and the creators of I Can Only Imagine, featuring interviews with many artists from contemporary Christian music. The Jesus Music, only in theaters beginning October 1st. More information is available at thejesusmusic.movie. This is Janet Mefford today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. This hour, Janet Mefford today is brought to you in part by the new documentary, The Jesus Music, from Lionsgate and the creators of I Can Only Imagine, featuring interviews with many artists from contemporary Christian music. The Jesus Music, only in theaters beginning October 1st. More information is available at thejesusmusic.movie. I didn't have a lot of time yesterday to get into everything I wanted to say about the refugee issues. So I'm going to follow up a little bit today. There is some very important information that I think you need to have concerning what is going on. There was this report now that's come out that two Afghan men have been charged with crimes. They're part of the tens of thousands of Afghan refugees at a fort up in Wisconsin. You know, some of these refugees are at our military bases. One was charged with child sex crimes. The other one was charged with strangling and suffocating his wife. So that's domestic abuse charges. And you might say, all right, well, you've got tens of thousands of Afghan. Really, we should call them evacuees, evacuees. You know, two is a big nothing out of all of these people who are here in the United States. The problem with that is, of course, twofold. One problem with that is to what degree are we vetting these people? And the other problem is, what do we already know about how Afghan evacuees do in Western countries? I'm going to get to the answer to both of those questions. But I first want to go to this cut. This is Representative Victoria Sparts of Indiana. She's a member of the House Judiciary Committee. And she went on Newsmax to react to the comments made by Secretary of State Antony Blinken about Afghan refugees getting vetted. So you're going to hear that first, and then you're going to hear her reaction. This is one. So, so what percentage of the Afghan population that left Afghanistan as part of our U.S. evacuation uh, efforts, what percentage of those were vetted before they actually got on the airplanes? Uh, before they got on the airplanes yeah. uh, to leave Kabul? Uh, certainly not. Most of them were not. Okay, so Congresswoman, the administration said that they'd be doing some vetting 
potentially on the back end. Did you see or hear any of that? And were they trying to prioritize SIV applicants, people who helped us in Afghanistan? Well, I think they do, but it, it, we have a lot of challenges. And what is interesting for me too, we our actually office have some U.S. citizens and uh, actually people who approved for green card who couldn't get through Taliban and now still in Afghanistan. And there are a lot of people could get through and Taliban let them go through. There are a lot of people with cash out there. It makes me wonder how some of these Afghan refugees have tens thousands of dollars. So definitely such a hectic withdrawal poses some problems that we need to figure out now on the back end who some of these people are. And then we abandon some legitimate problem refugees and citizens out there. So it's a problem. It is a problem. Senator Ted Cruz of Texas made this comment. Not only did you fail, this is of Blinken, not only did you fail to evacuate Americans and green card holders, but you also brought in tens of thousands of Afghans who had wholly inadequate vetting, bringing many of them into the United States. And the green card holder issue is what was just raised by the Congresswoman. Now, what I found interesting, and I continue to find this interesting, is how the story just changes in the Biden administration. Sure, I might have said this at one point, but now I'm saying something totally different. And it's not a contradiction at all. Well, Martha Raddatz over on ABC News had on Antony Blinken. This actually is several months old. This was from April of 2021. Now, keep in mind, I told you yesterday that the Biden administration has announced plans to raise the cap to take in refugees to 125,000 people in fiscal year 2022, which begins on October 1st. Let's go back in time now to April of 2021. And Martha Raddatz brings up some good points. And Antony Blinken, let's just say he doesn't give the best of answers. This is cut to. And and I want to move on to refugees. The Biden administration is poised to break a major promise to increase the number of refugee admissions to 62,000, calling it unlikely, instead signing an emergency presidential determination that keeps the cap at 15,000, which was President Trump's historic low number. Refugees International President Eric Schwartz said the president's decision to reaffirm the refugee admissions calling uh, ceiling of his predecessor is deeply disappointing. Now, I know on Friday, the White House said there was some confusion with that, and, and we'll talk about it again in May. Can you please clear that up? Is the cap on, and how far could it go? So, Martha, one of the biggest problems we faced was inheriting a broken uh, system. Uh, and the refugee system that uh, that that we found uh, was not uh, in a place did not have the uh, uh, the resources the means to effectively uh, process as many people as we hoped. But what we've done now, what the president has done now in citing uh, the initial directive, is to make sure we can start the process of actually bringing uh, bringing people in and beyond that, lifting uh, restraints uh, and, and uh, that the previous administration had imposed so that no one, for example, from uh, from Africa or, or the Middle East could come in. OK, N- nothing to really address this issue of the major broken promise by the Biden administration. They did raise the cap to 62,500 refugees for this past fiscal year, which is more than four times that of what President Trump imposed. Now it's going up to 125 thousand. So here Raditz back in April asks the crucial question. This is cut three. I know what you've done in that, but how many 
refugees do you think will be let in this year? And if you don't make that 62,000, will there be 125,000 next year? Which was your goal? I think what the president uh, has uh, and the White House has said today is that based on what we've now seen from uh, in terms of the inheritance and being able to, to look at what was in place, what we could put in place, how quickly we could put it in place, uh, it's going to be very hard to meet the, the 62,000 this fiscal year. But uh, we're going to be revisiting this over the, uh, the coming weeks. I think there'll be an, uh, an additional directive coming out in the middle of May. Uh, and we're, but the good news is we're now starting and we're able to start to bring people in who've been in the pipeline and who weren't able to come in. That is starting today. Uh, and we're going to revisit it uh, in the middle of May. 125,000 next year? Is well, that your goal? Look, the president's been clear about where he wants to go, uh, but we have to be, uh, you know, focused on what we're able to do when we're able to do it. Do you notice how he positions his comments that we set these insanely high numbers of refugees that we're going to allow into the United States in a particular year. You know, it's hard to reach that 62,000. We really tried. We're trying to bring in way more refugees. Baked into that statement is this assumption that the American people are just dying for hundreds of thousands of refugees to come in from all over the globe. And I don't understand in the cases of some of these people, why are they here? As refugees, specifically as refugees, there are different categories of people who want to come to the United States for various reasons. But just on the issue of refugees, refugees go back to the original understanding of what a refugee is. A refugee is normally somebody who comes from another country where their lives are in danger or there's genocide or there's widespread persecution. Now, when you look at who they want to bring in with 125,000 in fiscal year 2022, this is what was reported about this. In setting the target, the administration said it would focus on several key groups, including Central Americans, Afghans at risk due to their affiliation with the United States. Hmm, Nice phrasing. And you'll love this one. LGBTQ refugees. What? And members of the predominantly Muslim Uyghur ethnic group who are targets of Chinese government's campaign to eradicate their culture. All right. That's interesting. Uh, The Uyghurs are being sent to concentration camps in China. We've seen the footage of that, the drone footage or the aerial footage of those people being loaded into trains. But there are Christians being persecuted in China, too. How come you're not bringing them here? How come you're not bringing Christians in the Middle East here? Well. This was the vice president under Barack Obama because Christians are out. That's the thing. And as we've said before, in many cases, Christian refugees don't want to come to the United States. They would prefer, as those who are stationed in Lebanon, for example, they want to go home. Eventually, when things settle down in a place like Syria, where the civil war has been raging for a number of years, they'd love to be able to eventually go home. And, and we're never talking about this question of why is it you are not resettling Afghans in neighboring countries that have similar cultures and backgrounds and the same religion? Why are you bringing them to the United States? They said it was because we wanted to bring in the loyal translators. Well, really, tens of thousands of loyal translators? And these people aren't even being vetted. Don't worry, they'll be vetted on the back end. What does that even mean? I'll get them through the system and then we'll vet them. Yeah, that works out great. Just look at Wisconsin, where you have the child sex crime charge and the domestic abuse charge. And we'll get into more on that when we come back. You're listening to Janet Meffer today.
From Sherwood Pictures, Affirm Films, Provident Films, and the Kendrick Brothers comes Courageous Legacy. Celebrating 10 years of impact on families and fathers, remastered in 4K, and including a new ending and bonus scenes. So where are you, men of courage? I believe every father should step up and answer the call and say, I will, I will. Courageous Legacy, rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now playing. More information is available at CourageousTheMovie.com. Hi, this is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Candace talks about finding out she was pregnant. Thankfully, an ultrasound provided by Preborn allowed her to hear her baby's heartbeat. The sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little spectrum of hope. And I saw his heart beating on the screen and knowing that there's life growing inside. I mean, that sonogram changed my life. I went from just Candace to mom. Thank you to everybody that has given these gifts. You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. Would you make a leadership gift and sponsor a machine today? These life-saving machines cost more than most centers can afford. Your tax-deductible gift of $15,000 will place a machine in a needy women's center and save countless lives for years to come. All gifts are tax-deductible. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. From Lionsgate and the creators of I Can Only Imagine comes a new documentary, The Jesus music. Jesus music found its way in my hometown and it changed my life. I saw contemporary Christian music born right before my very eyes. I think music is the most powerful universal language in the world. Featuring interviews with many artists from contemporary Christian music, including Amy Grant, Michael W. Smith, Toby Mack, and Kirk Franklin. The Jesus music, only in theaters beginning October 1st. More information is available at thejesusmusic.movie. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We're back and we're talking more about what is to come in the United States, potentially, with all of these people being let in from around the world. You know, you got to bring your LGBTQ refugees into the United States because the Biden administration is very concerned about those gay refugees. From where? From where? I don't know. They're not. Tell- there are lots of gay refugees, and there are refugees from Africa, and there are refugees from Central Asia, and not apparently Christians in the Middle East. They don't matter. They've been persecuted, and they have had their houses torched. And are you bringing in Nigerian Christians from Africa? I'd be okay with that. Get those people out of there if they want to find some kind of status. What What happens though once they're here? especially those from Afghanistan who have not been vetted and they knew darn well that they couldn't vet them. They're bringing them here and there are still Americans in Afghanistan and green card holders who have the clearance to be able to come here and they're still not here. They're in Afghanistan. Just think to yourself about all the lies you've already been told and ask yourself how many more of these lies are going to backfire on the United States. Let me turn to a story that ran in the national interest in July of 2017. This was written very interestingly by Dr. Cheryl Bernard, who is program director of the Initiative for Middle Eastern Youth and the Alternative Strategies Initiative within the RAND Corporation's National Security Research Division. She had worked quite a bit with refugees and people in the Middle East, and she wrote this piece very reluctantly. She said in this headline, I've worked with refugees for decades, Europe's Afghan crime wave. 
is mind-boggling. She gets into what was going on in Europe. In 2014, there were waves of refugees flooding into Western Europe. You'll remember that. And everybody was all excited in Western Europe. This is fantastic. But there was one development she reported that had not been expected and was not tolerable. The large and growing incidence of sexual assaults committed by refugees against local women. Not the date rape kind. They're just terrible. It was terrible. Just out and out sexual assaults on women. And then it was all downplayed or hushed up. Nobody wanted to provide the right wing, she says, with fodder for nationalist agitation. And the hope was that these were isolated instances. But then there was a weird and puzzling footnote. Most of the assaults were being committed by refugees of one particular nationality, Afghans. Actually, Afghans should not even have been part of the refugee tide, she said, at least not in significant numbers. It was the Syrians who were expected. Afghanistan, a place of lingering and chronic conflict, is no longer on the official refugee roster. That's reserved for acute political and military emergencies. Again, this was four years ago. She was writing this piece. But everyone you know, was kind of sympathetic to their plight, and they understood why somebody would want to get out of Afghanistan. She says, I've worked on these issues related to refugees for most of my professional life, and this was something new. We understood that refugees sometimes would become perpetrators of crime in camps or they would be victims of crime at the hands of soldiers or camp guards. But she said this whole issue of sexual assaults mainly committed by Afghan refugees was really weird. She goes into a lot of detail on this and she she goes through some of these instances. Mothers with babies in carriages being raped in broad daylight and young girls being raped and it's just horrendous and she's trying to figure out why did this happen? What is going on? And some people made the argument that oh maybe they were drunk or maybe you know they're just feeling a little bit I don't know. They're not fitting in. And what excuse can you possibly give? Clash in cultural values. So they're seeing women who are out in tank tops. Maybe that's what drove them crazy. But she said, no, the preferred targets were not provocatively dressed. They're moms with small children. Maybe they're easier targets because they have kids with them and they can't fight back maybe as easily. But then she comes to the conclusion that this Afghan friend, a translator put forward, she said on the basis of his hundreds of interactions with these young men in his professional capacity, he believes to have discovered that they are motivated by a deep and abiding contempt for Western civilization. Think about that. To them, Europeans are the enemy and their women are legitimate spoils, as are all the other things one can take from them. Housing, money, passports, their laws don't matter, their culture is uninteresting, and ultimately their civilization is going to fall anyway to the horde of which one is the spearhead. No need to assimilate or work hard or try to build a decent life here for yourself. These Europeans, she writes, are too soft to seriously punish you for a transgression, and their days are numbered. And it wasn't just the sex crimes, the friend said. Those may agitate public sentiment the most, but the deliberate insidious abuse of the welfare system was just as consequential. He said, Afghan refugees, this is an Afghan speaking, Afghan refugees have a particular proclivity to play the system, to lie about their age, to lie about their circumstances, to pretend to be younger, to be handicapped, to belong to an ethnic minority. So what happened? Europe had to crack down on what was going on because you had such a big crime wave, mainly at the hands of Afghan refugees. Are we condemning every single person who's from Afghanistan? Certainly not. But you have to take this information into account and say, 
why is the Biden administration bringing so many unvetted Afghans to the United States while Americans are still waiting to come home? Just think about it. Ann Corcoran writes a great blog you ought to read, Refugee Resettlement Watch. I've talked about Ann's work for a long time. She does terrific work. Back in 2016, again, this is five years old, she put together this video for the Center for Security Policy, laying out some important information on refugee resettlement. It's all about changing America. I want you to listen to a little excerpt of this video from 2016. This is cut four. The Refugee Admissions Program was the brainchild of former Senators Ted Kennedy and Joe Biden. It was signed into law by President Jimmy Carter in 1980. And since then, it has admitted almost two million refugees into your towns and cities. In recent years, the federal government admitted, on average, 60 to 70,000 refugees a year and placed them in hundreds of U.S. towns and cities in 49 states, where they immediately, upon arrival, receive all forms of welfare, including Social Security for the elderly and disabled. Barack Obama has increased that number to 85,000 for this year. 10,000 of which are Syrian Sunni Muslims, and he vowed that next year he would propose bringing 100,000. In September, Obama will have his last opportunity to change America by changing its people. But we think he will go way beyond 100,000 as the resettlement industry, composed of nine federal contractors, or VOLAGs, began a huge propaganda campaign in Washington yesterday on August 28th a rally that fizzled spectacularly. They held a pathetically small AstroTurf event to demand even higher numbers for fiscal year 2017, which begins on October 1st, demonstrating that popular support for more refugees is tepid. This Washington, D.C. rally, funded by George Soros and his globalist friends, is the lead-up to a refugee extravaganza to be held at the United Nations, where we know that the Organization of Islamic Cooperation has great influence. Well, this is very interesting. Again, this was from 2016, but isn't it fascinating to hear about this small Soros-funded rally in which people were saying, we are clamoring for more refugees to come to the United States. There is not public support for overwhelming numbers of refugees coming to the United States. Uh, Just look at what the Biden administration has to say about the Cuban people. Do you think they care about the Cubans who've been in the streets of uh, of their cities fighting against the communist government? Uh, They pretty much ignored that. They don't care about those people. Yearning to breathe free is so 200 years ago, I guess, in their minds. But, you know, you have 15,000 Haitians coming across the southern border and you know, whatever, and just bring in more refugees. It's not whether or not you can ever bring people in who genuinely need the help, but you have to vet them and you have to, what, what's with this insane number of people that we're bringing into the United States in addition to all of the refugees that they're talking about, 125,000 in this next year. You already have all kinds of different categories of people who are also coming into the United States. You don't think this is about changing America by changing its people? That's exactly what it's about. And we've known this for a number of years. That's exactly what the Biden administration was trying to facilitate. Why else else would they do this? The Afghan evacuees easily could have been settled in fellow Muslim countries right there in their own region and their own culture. They're not doing that. Like, get them in here. 
leave the Americans over there, but get the Afghan evacuees into the United States. So what happens with these two who were charged with these crimes in Wisconsin? Are they going to deport anybody who commits crimes against Americans? Or even in the case of one of the men, his own wife, are they going to deport them? There's no way they're going to deport them. And think of the cost. We're broke as a nation. We're beyond broke as a nation. They don't care about Americans first. It doesn't mean we can't care about other people. I'm not trying to be cold and heartless. I'm not cold and heartless. But how far do you push this before you say we can't afford this? These people aren't vetted. These numbers are out of control. And you have all of these volags, including leftist evangelicals pushing this stuff. Oh, the moral godly thing to do is let in our neighbors. Yeah, let's see how that turns out. Let's just put a pin on this and see how this turns out down the road. Not well. Not well at all. This hour of Janet Mefford today is brought to you in part by Courageous Legacy, the new film from Sherwood Pictures, Affirm Films, Provident Films, and the Kendrick Brothers, remastered in 4K and including a new ending, Courageous Legacy. Rated PG-13, some material may be inappropriate for children under 13 in theaters today.